God is good. Well, I want to preach this morning. I want to continue on in our sermon series, Conversion Culture. Conversion Culture. And today's sermon title would be Get Real. Look at your neighbor and say, Get Real. Get real. Have you ever been somewhere and maybe you're looking at something to buy with your spouse or a friend and you say, I'm going to buy that. And they say, get real. Get real. You don't have the money for that. Get real. Well, we're going to talk about getting real today in our conversion culture series. Somebody asked on Thursday morning, we have the Thursday nine o'clock service, and this is a good point for me to plug that. Uh, I know you can get up that early because you're here now at nine o'clock, but if you don't have anything going on and you're not working or anything like that, on Thursdays at nine o'clock, Pastor David Allison, Sister Carol Allison have a wonderful service from about nine o'clock to 10 o'clock, and I have enjoyed them. We've had two of them so far. This Thursday will make the third one. I have enjoyed them immensely. And what they do is they start out and take about 20 minutes and we talk about the sermon that was preached on Sunday. And I have enjoyed that immensely. And it's really interesting for me to hear people's comments about what we talked about and what we preached on Sunday. And then we take some time and one of them, they rotate, will share from the word of God. And then we have some prayer time and sharing at the end. It's about an hour. So on nine o'clock Thursday, I would love for you to come and be part of that service. But during that nine o'clock service, someone asked the question about conversion culture and converting the world around us, and the world around us desperately needs to hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And someone asked the question, how do we do it? How do we do it? And I thought, that's a great question. That's a great question. It can seem overwhelming, can't it? We can look around just locally. We can watch the national news. We can see where everything seems to be headed and headed very swiftly in a wrong direction. We can easily say it's overwhelming. We're caught up in the tide. The tide is pulling us out to see how do we do it? How do we stop? How do we bring conversion? I thought about that question the rest of the week. I thought about that question over the weekend. How do we do it? Here's how we do it as individuals, one decision at a time. You and I this morning, first and foremost, we must make up our mind that we are going to serve the Lord. And then once we have made up our mind that we are going to follow Jesus, then we, one step at a time, one decision at a time, make that choice every day. How do we impact those around us? One person at a time. One person at a time. No, I can't change the whole world, but there's somebody around me that I can show the love of Christ to. There are some, there's somebody who I have influence with. There's somebody I can do a good deed for in the name of Christ. There's somebody I can share the gospel with. There's somebody I can invite to church. One person at a time. And I am convinced that we, the people of God here on 1505 Simmons Gap Road, Dyke, Virginia, don't ask me the zip code because I haven't memorized it yet. I am convinced that you and I can make a difference in the communities that we live in right here. I am convinced our church can make a difference. We can do it one person at a time, one family 
at a time. So today we look at the church at Pergamos or Pergamum. I've seen it both ways. The church at Pergamum. And we see a challenge here to get real. And a warning not to compromise. A challenge to get real and a warning not to compromise. When I think about real versus fake, real versus artificial, the millennial generation today, those who were born at 1980 up, I'm close to that. I was 1979 and a half. So I'm a millennial, right? No, I'm that far away. But those millennials can see through fake One thing about this younger generation, they want authentic, they want real. And as people of God, we need to be real. I thought about real versus artificial. I thought about shoes. There are name brand shoes and there are off-brand shoes. And if you have a teenager, you know that you cannot get by buying them the off-brand shoes. You have to take out a second mortgage on your house and get them the name brand shoes. Somebody give me an amen that have teenagers. No, I see a few of you smiling. You know what I'm talking about. There are clothes that are name brand and there are clothes that are off brand. There are plants that are real and there are plants that are plastic. I have seen some people have nice, beautiful plants in their front yard or around their sidewalk only to realize that they had just taken plastic plants and stuck them in the ground. Hey, that's okay. I'm not gonna judge you if you do that. It's all right with me. If I come to your house, as long as you feed me, I don't care if your plants are real or fake, okay? It's okay with me. It's okay with me. But I've seen real plants and fake plants. And you know, I have to mention food here. Sometimes there is real macaroni and cheese. Hallelujah. And there is fake from the box macaroni and cheese. I want the real stuff where there's about three or four cheeses melted tenderly in the noodles. Oh, we could have revival right there. Then you have that box stuff, the artificial, the fake stuff. So there's real and then there's fake. There's real and there is artificial. But this morning I wanna preach to you about the word of God, which is real. How many knows God's word is real? God's word is true. Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand. Amen. God's word is real. God's word is true. God's word, this Bible is God inspired. This is not the Encyclopedia Britannica. This is not Shakespeare. This is not anything that is man-made, but the Bible, when the Holy Spirit moved upon men of old and they wrote down the word of the living God. This Bible is true. This Bible is God-inspired. The word of God is powerful. Somebody say power. The word of God is powerful. The word of God is precious. Have you ever found God's word to be precious to you? Maybe during a tough time, a time of loss, you've maybe lost a loved one, maybe you, you just have experienced failure or disappointment in life, but God's word can be so precious to us. And God's word is precisely what you and I need, what we need. Have there been times that the word of God is not maybe exactly what I want, but it's what I need? You know what I'm saying? Sometimes the word of God convicts me Sometimes it's like, oh, oh, I'm stepping on my toes. 
but I need it, don't I? We need it. It's sharp. It's powerful. It's what we need. There was a story that was told about the power of God's word. They, they, they went to a church where the, the pastor was preaching expository type preaching and he would go through a book of the Bible in order, which I, I, I like that sometimes. That's a good way to do things. And this person brought a guest with them to church. Well, they got there and they realized the preacher was gonna be preaching from one of those chapters where it said, Obed begat this one and this one begat and begat. You know, the first chapter of Matthew, he begat, he and he begat, begat, begat. He was born to him, he was born to him. And the person thought, oh no, I have invited this visitor to church and today the preacher's gonna be preaching from this very boring chapter. Well, long story short, the visitor, the guest got saved. The visitor gave their heart to the Lord and they said, why? He said, well, if all those people died, I'm surely gonna die too. I better make myself right with the Lord. The word of God is powerful. Any way it's packaged, it's powerful. The word of God is kind of like a surgeon's knife. I look around this room, I know some of you have had surgery since I've been here and, and some of you before that, we've all had some type of a surgery, but a surgeon's knife will cut it's precise. It will cause temporary pain. Has anybody came out of a surgery feeling good? Now, I'm not talking about when you're still hyped up on the meds, that, the happy gas or whatever, but when that wears off, has anybody really hit recovery time feeling good and saying, man, I feel like a spring chicken. I just came out of surgery. No, we hurt. We're in pain. And that's kind of like the word of God. It's like a surgeon's knife. Sometimes it'll cause some temporary pain. Sometimes it'll cause some temporary discomfort, but always it will bring long-term health. I may have to have my knee operated on and suffer some temporary pain to have that fixed, but long-term that knee is gonna get better and healthy. And that's the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts going in, it cuts coming out, it may cause us some temporary pain. It may convict us. It may cut out some things that should not be in our lives, but it always brings long-term health to our lives. The word of God is powerful. Here in Revelation 2, if you look with me at verse 12, we see that God is speaking to this church about the power of his word but he's also implying that my word is about to come to you in judgment. Nobody wants judgment. We all want mercy. We all want grace. We need mercy. We need grace. And there is a way through Jesus Christ for us to avoid judgment. And God really does not want to have to judge you and I. He wants to forgive us. He wants this whole world to come to know him through Jesus Christ and have our sins forgiven and taken away so he doesn't have to judge us. And that's why he's writing this letter to this church at Pergamum. I thought back to my days when I was a principal of a couple different schools. And I can remember bringing students time and time and time again into my office and talking to them 
and giving them a warning and saying, all right, here's what's happening. What's going on? Listening to what they would say and then say to them, okay, well, here's what we need to fix. And let me just say, now, if we don't fix this, here's what I'm gonna have to do. I'm gonna have to suspend you. Now, I don't wanna have to do that. Can we fix this? And I thought, that's really how God wants to deal with you and I. That's how God was dealing with the church at Pergamum. He's sending them this letter. He starts by commending them on some good things. But then he talks to them, as we're going to see here in just a moment, about things that should not be in their church. And he's giving them time to fix it. So I want to say to you, child of God, this morning, if you feel like God is convicting you of something in your life, a sin that needs to go away, he wants to help us get rid of that through the help of Christ so he doesn't have to judge us. He is long-suffering. He's merciful. He wants us to deal with the situation so he doesn't have to judge us. God is so gracious so the times that God stirs you or me or convicts you or me, we need to remember it's because he loves us. Look at verse 12, please. Revelation 2, 12. And to the angel in Pergamos write, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Right there is talking about that powerful word of God, but it's also talking about that powerful word of God that's gonna come in judgment if they don't get things right. Look on to verse 13. I know your works. How many knows God knows what we're doing? And where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. He's saying, listen, I know your works. I know what's good. I know what's not. And I know where you're at. Your church is in Sin City. Now, they weren't in Las Vegas, but it was probably worse than Las Vegas. He's saying, hey, I know your, your church is right in the middle of such paganism, emperor worship, like we talked about last week, but it was also the center of a lot of the Greek gods and mythology. You've heard of Zeus before. There was a big temple there for, for Zeus. They were right in the middle that God called it Satan's throne. Man, if I were gonna plant a church, I don't know if I'd wanna start my church in the middle of Satan's throne. How about you? I'd wanna find somewhere where there's some good Bible-believing people, but they were in a bad place. But just because they were in a bad place did not give them the right to compromise. Let me preach to us as the church today. More and more, we find ourselves dwelling where Satan's throne is. Is the world around us getting any better or is it getting worse? Is it getting any more holy or is it getting more evil? We find ourselves seemingly dwelling where Satan's throne is, where iniquity abounds, where sin abounds, but that gives us no reason, no excuse to compromise. We cannot compromise, regardless of what happens in the world around us. And here's what he says to them, and you hold fast to my name. He's commending them here. You hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days when Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. There was a man named Antipas who was martyred, probably was their pastor. We're not exactly sure, but probably was their pastor. He was killed, but they still held their faith. Kind of like Polycarp, who we talked about last week at Smyrna, who was martyred for the cause of Christ. So he starts out commending them. They're holding fast in serving God. They're holding fast with the world around them. 
but, for, but 14, but I have a few things against you because you have with you those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword. He's saying there is some compromise in your church. He's saying you have held faithful with the world around you. You held faithful when they killed your pastor. You've held faithful, but somehow within the body, you have been tolerating people bringing in doctrines, bringing in teachings that are contrary to the word of God. It would kind of be like us today at Nortonsville Church of God if, if people started to come to our church and we said, oh, I really like them. I'm really glad they're here and I really enjoy fellowship with them. And, and maybe one of them says, I'd like to teach one day. And we say, all right, we're gonna let you teach. But when they begin to teach, maybe their teaching doesn't line up with the word of God. Maybe they're off away from the word in some point or another point, but we would say, oh, we like them. It's all right. They only teach once a month. We'll, we'll just let that stay. But we can't let that stay. We can't let that stay. We must guard against what is preached and what is taught. And it all must line up with the word of God. The doctrine of Balaam. This man Balaam is one of the teachings they had let come into their church. This man Balaam is a really unique character. I, I really still haven't quite figured him out. He wasn't a good guy. He was kind of a scoundrel. He's mentioned in eight different books of the Bible. And he had a donkey talk to him at one point in time. Now, if I had a donkey talk to me, it would probably get my attention. But it didn't really get his attention. <laughs> but Balaam was like a soothsayer and a false prophet and the king Balak sent to Balaam and said, hey, the Israelites are coming through. We need to stop them. I want you to come and curse them. I want you to put a hex on them. I want you to curse them. And at first, Balaam says no. He says no multiple times. But there's a little money that starts getting involved. And, and that's kind of some of what it's speaking of here in Revelation as the church, we cannot let money dictate ministry. Can I get an amen with that? If we get to the point where we think we've got to water down the gospel so that the tithe and the offering will be enough to pay my salary and pay the bills, we're in a bad place, amen? God will take care of his church. We need to preach the word of God. But they had let money influence them. It disgusted me. Can I just say that? Can I, can I say that at nine o'clock? It disgusts me. When I watch TV evangelists, sometimes, not all of them, I'm not talking about all of them. Don't, don't get me wrong. There's some good ones. But some of them will preach a message totally manipulating the people for money. That's a shame. That is a shame. And they will face the judgment of God. 
Oh, yes, I believe in giving to God. Amen. I believe it's biblical. But if I ever get up here trying to manipulate you to give, God, help me. I need to just go back and work a public job at that point and forget about it, right? Ridiculous. I'll see them preach and then they get to the end and the altar call is as if, all right, now you sow your seed so God can give you your blessing. That's not how it works. I don't have to pay for the Holy Ghost to minister to me. I don't have to pay to gain access to the altar of God. Jesus Christ paid it all. But there has been this doctrine of Balaam that has permeated into the church and into the church world. Another part of that was idolatry, worshiping idols, worshiping things, compromising, even subtle compromising. We can't compromise. The other part of that doctrine of Balaam was sexual immorality. So basically when he went to curse them, after a little money was involved and greased the wheel, get back to my story over here. I got on a little tangent, didn't I? He went to to curse God's people. Balaam, Balak, the king, paid him. He went, he said, finally, he's gonna curse them. Every time he opened his mouth to try to curse them, blessing came out. God got involved and said, oh, no, 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 these are my people. You're not gonna curse my people, all right, big boy? I've already talked to you with a donkey. Now I'm gonna just make your mouth. Every time he tried to curse them, a blessing came out. Well, Balak is probably like thinking, can I stop payment on the check about right now? What in the world is going on? And he kept blessing. Every time he tried to curse them, blessing came out. So he couldn't curse God's people. So he gave Balak another strategy of compromise. And I thought about that with the church. Thought about that with us as a local body of believers. Maybe the outside world can't persecute us enough to stop us. Maybe the outside world can't pull us apart. So then maybe the enemy would say, all right, well, I'm just gonna try to work on the inside. Mm. But we're not ignorant of the enemy's devices, are we? But here he worked on the inside. He, he started saying, all right, well, let's just have some compromise and bring in some things that will distract them from truly worshiping God and bring in some idol worship, subtly here and subtly there. Let me bring in some sexual immorality. Let me get them interested in some people that they really have no business marrying, people they really have no business coming together with and raising their children with, and I will get them through compromise. Now, here's a good practical point for me to throw out here right now. If you're not married, before you get married, you better make sure that whoever you marry, dun, 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 whoever you marry loves the Lord because that person's gonna help you raise your children. That's, that's pretty good, pretty good. Pretty, I'm not gonna charge anything extra for that. That's pretty good advice, isn't it? <laughs> Bible says, don't be unequally yoked. You say, well, oh, but their eyes are so dreamy. I don't care about their eyes. What about their heart? Am I preaching all right this morning? If, you, if you're not married, make sure you marry the, the person God has for you because that's what started happening here with this doctrine of Balaam. They started connecting with other people and bringing it in and it started pulling generations away from God. 
Then there was this doctrine of the Nicolaitans that had permeated within their church body. And the Nicolaitans, basically, one commentary said it this way, and I liked how they summed it up. They basically said there's nothing wrong with prudent conforming. Basically, it was kind of like this political correctness that has permeated our land today. Basically, what the enemy would love for us to do as a church, what the world around us would love for us to do is come in here on Sundays and make everybody feel good, find the beautiful passages that just tickle our ears, but conform to the sins that are being accepted around us. But we can't do that. If we wanted this to be a social club, then we just need to make it the Lions Club or the Rotary Club or any of those other clubs. And I'm not against any of those clubs, but we're the church. We're the church. We're the church. And we must preach and teach the full gospel that is found in this word right here. I still believe the Genesis to the Revelation. I still believe it was all inspired by God. I still believe none of it contradicts itself. In fact, if you study the word from Genesis to Revelation, it will prove itself over time and time and time again. I still believe that if this word defines something as sin, it's still sin. Sin is still sin. We have a Supreme Court justice that's getting ready to be confirmed. We need to pray about that God would be involved in this process. But can I tell you, the Supreme Court, regardless of their rulings in any direction, does not determine right and wrong. God's word determines right and wrong. I do not want to be, I do not want to pastor a high society accepting liberal church. That's not who we are. We are followers of Christ and we still believe in righteousness and holiness and we still believe there is right and there is wrong. But I ask us today, is there a battle going on in our churches to conform so that we can just be the nice guy? You know me, I'm not preaching and saying we're gonna come in here and beat everybody over the head. Hopefully you don't think I beat you over the head when I preach. But I hope that you think that I do preach the true word of God with love and without compromise. We cannot compromise. And I wanna say this and I'll go to my next point and we'll wrap this up. I firmly believe that there are a lot of people out there who truly, truly don't want us to compromise. They truly, truly want to come and find a church where they can really hear the real word of God, where they can really experience the true Holy Spirit. And I believe there are still churches, plural, all across the land today that have not compromised and that still preach the word of God. And God help us to be one of those. We are not called to conform to this world. We are called to transform this world. So if we do this, there is a real reward, a real reward. I love this part, man. This is just a little small letter, but boy, did Christ pack in a lot of stuff to John right here in this little, just a few verses. Look at, look at verse 17, please. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. He closes his letter to this church at Pergamum. He started by praising them. Then he told them what they needed to fix. Then he told them, hey, if you'll hold fast to the good things you're doing, if you'll fix the things you need to fix, I have a real reward for you. That first thing he mentioned was the hidden manna to eat. When the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they were wandering in the wilderness. What did God feed them with every day? What was it? Well, they looked at it and said, what is it? What is it? What is it? It was manna. Manna literally means, what is it? What is it? And now we read right here where Christ said, if you hold fast to my word, if you make it and you overcome, I'm gonna give you the hidden manna. And I say, well, what is it, Lord? What is it? What is this hidden manna that you're promising to give to me? And as I researched it out, there's a couple layers to this. It's supernatural substance, supernatural nutrition. God will keep us going. But then when you take it even deeper than that and study it right down to it, it basically says, I'm gonna give you Christ himself. Because over in John, he talks about Christ as the manna. I want Christ in my life, how about you? Furthermore, I need Christ in my life. I desperately need Christ in my life. I want this hidden manna. Then he said a white stone. What was the white stone? In those ancient times, they would go in to court. And the judge would use stones in their verdict. It reminded me of a very quick story when I first started teaching. There's this big thing called tenure. And after, it, it was three years, now it's five years. But after three years, you don't do anything ignorant and you do a pretty good job, you get tenure. And that gives you a continuing contract. And I remember I had finished my third year and we were having the end of the school year faculty meeting and we were all sitting at these big tables and all of a sudden, the principal and another older teacher, they started giving everybody rocks. A clear one, a white one, and a black one. And I thought, what in the world? And then the principal got up and he said, we have this young man who has been here for three years and he's on his tenure year and I'm gonna pass around this cup and I want you to vote on whether he gets his tenure or not. He was talking about me, the joke was on me. I had said something in the faculty workroom that had circled around trying to be funny myself, well they got me back. And so here it goes, cups going around the table and all the teachers put in, not the white stone, <laughs> they all put in the black stone. So I got blackballed after three years. I still got the tenure. It was, it was quite funny. It was quite funny. They got, me, they got me really good. But right here he said, I'm gonna give you the white stone. The white stone for innocence. In ancient times, the judge would deliberate. He would go out. When he came back in, he would either have the black stone or he'd have the white stone. If you had the white stone, you were innocent. On that day when I stand before the judge, I want the white stone. I want to be declared innocent. 
But you say, pastor, I've sinned, I've done wrong things. Yes, I have too. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. How do we get the white stone? It's through Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ forgives us of our sin, then we become justified before God just as if we had never sinned. That makes me happy because I think I can remember sins. I can remember things that I have done that have not pleased the Lord. I remember those things, but Jesus paid it all. And when I ask him to forgive me, his blood washed away all those sins and I can be justified. That's the message to you this morning. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you can ask him to come into your heart and into your life. You can be forgiven and declared justified just as if I have never sinned. On that white stone's a new name which is a perfect, eternal identification. Do you know you're gonna get, as a child of God, a new name? That new name's gonna embody that new body that we have, and we're gonna be like Christ. What a promise that we have. Would you stand with me this morning? So he ended by saying, do you have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church? And that's what I ask us this morning as we've listened to this letter that was written to Pergamum, the church at Pergamum, do we have an ear to hear what Christ is trying to say to us through this letter? Please don't compromise. Please choose to hear. Please choose to hear the Holy Word and the Holy Spirit. Can I say that in, in closing Please choose to hear the Holy Word and the Holy Spirit. Would you bow your head with me this morning? God, would you help us to not compromise your word? Lord, I pray as a corporate body, as a church, knowing that we're not the only church, we're part of the church, your body. But Lord, I pray as us, as local believers that come together to worship together, God, help us to guard against compromise. God, don't let us compromise in anything that we preach or anything we teach or in how we live. And Lord, let us overcome so that one day we'll receive that white stone and that new name and that hidden manna. God, let our lights shine to this world that has compromised so much but who need you so desperately, they so desperately need to see from us a true shining example of what Christ can do in somebody's life. And let us be those examples, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. They're gonna sing one final song and continue to pray and praise. The altar is open if you wanna come and pray. Around.